listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At a church I used to pastor, we had these big logbooks where we would record important events in the life of the community, baptisms, marriages, and deaths. The first time I baptized someone, the church's administrative assistant got the books out of the church safe for me to update. In a world where almost everything is computerized, I was fascinated by these big old volumes. So I decided to spend a little bit of time flipping through the pages, reading the names and running my fingers along the dates and details. Jane Doe, baptized July 23, 1952. John Smith, baptized August 15, 1952, and so on. And then I found a section where the pages began to tell a different kind of story. John Doe, baptized November 2nd, excommunicated May 18th. Jane Smith, baptized October 9th, excommunicated January 16th. And as I ran my finger over the names and the word excommunicated next to entry after entry, I couldn't help but think there's a story behind each one of these, a difficult story. Stories that are still impacting the life of this church, even if we never talk about them. Theologian and pastor Nadia Bols-Weber says that excommunication is just a fancy way of talking about kicking people out of the church. And my former church's record book told the story of people who were welcomed into the community through baptism and people who had been kicked out of that community through excommunication. A person whose story includes being kicked out of a church or having a loved one kicked out of a church is going to bring that experience to this passage. Whether it was a formal excommunication process or the strong sense that because of who they are, they are no longer welcome or would never be welcome, that experience impacts how they hear this gospel passage. No one comes to these texts as a blank slate. Context matters experience matters, our stories matter. But despite the diverse nature of this congregation here tonight and the wealth of experiences you all bring with you, I believe that this passage contains good news for all of us and that part of my job is to try and help us to find it. So where is the good news in this passage for this community, for you as an individual, for myself? What I'd like to do tonight is offer a few hunches. I spent the week kind of like a dog sniffing after a bone if the bone was the good news. Is that it? Does that smell like good news? Is that it over there? And I hope you're going to do the same tonight. Give each of these ideas the sniff test. Do they smell like good news to you? I hope so, but it's okay if they don't. And I'm open to further conversation with any of you about any of these things throughout the week. You just need to get in touch with me. So I believe that the first piece of good news in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is this. Sin and conflict exist. They are a natural part of life, and while we shouldn't run headlong into those sorts of behaviors, we can't pretend we will never experience them. So when you sin, and when you find yourself in conflict with another person, you can say to yourself, hallelujah, I'm a normal human being. That's good news, right? 
I think it would be great news if we would all lean into having a more positive attitude towards conflict because a lot of what can get weird when we are in conflict with someone else comes from our sense that it is wrong to simply be in conflict. If we view conflict as abnormal, the fact that conflict exists means we are already doing something wrong and that makes us uncomfortable. But the presence of conflict doesn't mean we're abnormal, it means we're human. The second piece of good news in this passage is that when sin and conflict occur, there are things we can do about them. We aren't helpless. We don't have to suffer under their weight. We can act, change, and grow. Now, Matthew 18 is not directly applicable to every form of conflict, and it has been misused. But it does provide us with a framework for handling situations when someone in the church has hurt us. But does that framework contain any good news for us today? If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. A couple of things to note here. First of all, this is a plan that has a context, the context of Christian community. Although these steps may be applicable to other situations and relationships, this plan assumes that the people involved have a relationship, that they care about each other, and that their relationship is based in part on their shared membership in the church there is a base upon which to build. Now, a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out just what the phrase sinned against you means. But I think it's less important to make a list of sins or to work to define what exactly it means to be sinned against than it is to note that this text is showing us that the result of sin is a breach in relationship. There is a break in the relationship. There is a wound, and that wound needs to be healed. This particular passage is not focusing on every consequence of sin. It's focusing on the way sin impacts human relationships. So if someone has sinned against you, if a breach has been created in their relationship, then Jesus is telling us to go and talk to the person about it in private. Choosing to deal with a matter one-on-one in private allows the person to hear what you have to say with minimal shame, which is a good thing because shame makes us behave in weird and unhelpful ways. Jesus is setting up a process that focuses not on the sin itself, but on the impact of that sin on the relationship. Jesus is aware that we will tend to experience shame in these kinds of situations and is sensitive enough to minimize that potential. And that sounds like good news to me too. Passage is also saying that when someone hurts you, you shouldn't simply ignore it, which also means that it is acknowledging that sin hurts us and that hurt should be taken seriously. I don't know about your story, but too often in my life I've been encouraged to minimize situations where I've been hurt or ignore them entirely. And today it feels like good news to imagine Jesus standing before me and saying, no, that did hurt you, and that hurt has impacted you. You don't have to pretend that it didn't just to make other people feel more comfortable. So let's review the process. If someone sins against you, the hurt is real, the wound is real, It may be a small scratch or something life-threatening, but it exists. And when this happens, you need to acknowledge the wound and go and talk to the person who hurt you in private. And if they hear you, if they realize they have indeed wounded you and they seek to repair that wound, great. The two of you can continue to work to heal the wound and deepen your relationship. But if they don't... Bring a second person with you, and if that doesn't work, bring another member of the community, and if that doesn't work, involve the rest of the community. Involve the church. 
And if that doesn't work, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, I've had some really good experiences with this process, experiences where someone has come to me and let me know that I hurt them and how that impacted them, and I was able to apologize and correct my mistake, and we remain in relationship, and I'm so grateful they didn't just cut me out of their life or complain about me for hours to their friends, but instead gave me a chance to make it right. These positive experiences have become part of my story, and they've helped me to develop the confidence to engage in bigger, more challenging conflicts because they've taught me that engaging in a challenging conversation can have good results, even if it's hard at the time. I've also had some harder experiences with this process, experiences where people used the form of the process to tell me they were unhappy with something I'd done without using the spirit of the process with its focus on healing the relationship. They came, quoted the verses, informed me I had sinned against them, dropped the mic, and walked away. There was no dialogue, no chance to process, no chance to heal the breach. In those experiences, Matthew 18 has felt to me more like a weapon than a tool of reconciliation. And I've also had the experience of going to someone and saying, you have hurt me, and they weren't willing to listen. And so I brought someone else with me and I said, you have hurt me, and they still weren't willing to listen. And I went all the way to the end of this Matthew 18 process, and still there was no movement, and so now they are to me like a Gentile and a tax collector. And I've grieved that, and I continue to grieve that. But I don't think it is sugarcoating things in any way to say that in my grief, I also see good news. Because while it is painful, and it is not a learning process I would wish on anyone else, I think my grief is teaching me what it means to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector. I think it is teaching me how God wants us to think about people that we can't be in healthy relationship with. I think there is good news there, even if I often find it hard to see. And I am going to unpack that a little bit more in a minute, but there's something I want to say first. It's really important for me to emphasize that there is an essential first step that you have to practice if you are ever going to engage someone in a Matthew 18-style conversation And it's a step that is often missed. It's also the essential step if you want to practice forgiveness, which is a related but different practice that we don't have time to get into tonight. Sometimes when someone hurts us, it's a tiny scratch. Sometimes it's a bite. And sometimes it's life-threatening. Sin always hurts. But some of the ways we sin against each other can be more damaging than others. So if you want to, on one hand, work through this four-step process of healing a relationship or forgiving someone who has hurt you, if your right hand, let's say, is going to walk through those steps, then before you can do that, your left hand needs to go up and say, no more abuse. Sometimes because the hurt is minor and the relationship is strong, this is an easy thing to do. Please don't talk to me like that. Okay, let's keep going. Sometimes it's harder. Sometimes it might take all of your strength to hold this hand up and you won't have the energy for this hand. That's okay. Just focus on this. Sometimes you might need to bring in some recruits even just to manage this side of things. You need to bring in some friends or a counselor or the authorities. And that's okay too. This has to be the starting place. No more abuse. 
Too often, verses like Matthew 18 have been used to send people back into abusive situations, and I want to say as clearly as possible that that's just wrong. Step one, no more abuse. That is the starting point, and that sounds like good news to me. Now, there's one final piece of good news I'd like to highlight from this passage tonight. I think it is good news that we're supposed to treat people that we can't be in a healthy relationship with as if they are Gentiles and tax collectors. So with the hand of no more abuse always firmly in place, what does it mean to treat someone like a Gentile or a tax collector? Too often I think we've made the mistake of treating these sorts of people the way the world treats Gentiles and tax collectors. We've shunned them, reviled them, ridiculed them. We've declared they are not welcome here. But that's not how Jesus treats them. And Matthew, who this gospel is named after, knew that all too well because when Jesus chose him to be a disciple, Matthew was a tax collector. And it seems to me that Matthew was never able to quite shake the fact that Jesus chose him a tax collector, to be a disciple. And I think that's the point. I don't think tax collectors are used here as an example by accident. The book of Matthew places a unique emphasis on tax collectors. In chapter 9, we hear the story of Matthew's decision to leave his work as a tax collector when Jesus asks him to follow him. In chapter 10, Matthew lists all the names of the 12 disciples, but he only includes the profession of one of them. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, and so on. It's like he still can't quite believe he's been included in Jesus' inner circle. In chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus responds to his critics who accuse him of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners. Of course, they think they're discrediting Jesus, but Jesus quotes them as if to say, yes, you've got it, that's exactly who I am. And Matthew records the incident as if to say, a friend to sinners and tax collectors? You bet he is. So what does it mean to treat someone like a tax collector? Well, if Jesus is our guide in this, it means to love them, to care for them, to want to be in relationship with them. And if relationship isn't possible at this time, to hope and work for a day where it might be possible in the future. It means we always keep up the hand that says no more abuse, while also working to avoid turning our other hand into a fist. It means resisting the temptation to wound as we have been wounded. It means keeping this hand open to the possibility of reconciliation in the future. And finally, because I can't resist, here is some more good news. You are all God's beloved. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much money you have in your pockets, no matter what color your skin is, no matter who you love, you are God's beloved, even if you are a Gentile or a tax collector. You are beloved. And you are welcome. God always stands with open arms of welcome waiting to embrace you. And in a few minutes when we move to the communion table, to Christ's table, you're welcome there too. You are always welcome. You are beloved. You are welcome. And that's good news. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.